Well, I feel like I've been gone for about two months. Uh, this past week was a study leave for me. So I went into the bat cave and uh, didn't talk to anybody for about four or five days and uh, planned out our sermon series for the fall of 2016 through the spring of 2017 in addition to our church calendar. But I'm really excited. And, you know, I began each day just asking God and asking the Holy Spirit to guide me what topics, because there are so many different topics to preach on, what he would want for uh, our particular context in our community. So I am uh, thrilled, and I wish I could kind of go through all of them right now because I'm just jumping out of my shoes. But just to give you an idea, and I also had some feedback from folks in the congregation too because I find I get a lot of really good ideas about sermon series from collaboration with a number of you. Uh, but, uh, for example, we're going to kick off 2017 with the top 10 verses to memorize. And we're going to spend 10 weeks going through those verses. And it was something that I've always wanted to do. Another one was, actually, someone gave me uh, an idea. was on good anger and bad anger, especially in the context of parenting. So that's going to be a, a fun series. And then also we're going to spend about seven or eight weeks, seven or eight, eight weeks, not 78, uh, in the book of Romans. And I've never preached through the book of Romans, so I'm very excited about that. So I want to jump into this morning's uh, sermon, and this is a new series for us called Thrive. And I want to begin with kind of sharing a couple of stories. And there's a, a mentor of mine that shared these, so this comes from him. But uh, there's the, a, actually a true story of Robin Williams, the comic, uh, who passed away recently. But uh, Robin Williams, early in his career, he was on an airline, and he was dressed up as a pilot, and he was sitting in the very back row, and everybody was kind of looking at him like, you know, because they didn't really recognize him, didn't know him as much, and he was joking, and he was, he was talking to people. And then as he was doing that, the co-pilot came out of the cockpit, uh, walking down the middle, and then Rob Williams got up, walked towards the middle, and they both looked at one another and yelled, who's flying this plane? <laughs> and then they ran to the cockpit. And it was a great joke, because obviously the, 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 the plane was fly- fine. There's also the, uh, the story of uh, Lufthansa Airlines. I don't know if you've heard that airlines before, but uh, they had a flight, and they were uh, flying over the Atlantic Ocean. And something went wrong, and gonna, they were going to have to crash. And the pilot came on, and he told the passengers, uh, we're going to have to make a crash landing into the ocean. That's okay. We're Lufthansa. We prepared for this. We're okay. So those of you who can swim, get on the left side of the plane— and those of you who can't swim, get on the right side of the plane. And the plane went down, hit the ocean. The pilot came back on, and he said, we, we, we've crashed in the ocean. For those of you on the left side of the plane, the emergency exits are going to open right away. So immediately swim away from the plane. For those of you on the right side of the plane, thank you for flying Lufthansa Airlines. <laughs> But whenever we, uh, whenever we board a plane, we want to know, the, the person flying this plane, is he competent? And this applies to the other areas of our lives. If it's a, whether it's a doctor or a dentist, or maybe it's our kids' teachers, or maybe it's a babysitter, is this person competent? Can I trust them? And if so, we live with freedom and confidence. But if we, if we can't, if there is just a minuscule uh, aspect of worry, then we're kind of tied up in anxiety and worry. And, and a number of you know I'm exactly what I'm talking about. And this ultimately leads to God. Is God a God that, that we can trust? 
as he flies the planet, can we trust him? Is he competent? Is he competent to, to fly this world? And we hear a lot in church that he is, yet we go through these crashes. We go through these sort of messes in our lives, and it seems like that, that no one's flying the plane. It seems as if we're, we're on our own, despite what the Bible says. For example, and this is the tension of living the Christian life. In John 10, 10, for example, Jesus explains to his disciples, he says, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. That's the devil. But he says this, I have come so that you may have life. Here's a key phrase, a rich and satisfying life. Now we see something like that and we say, yes, that's what I signed up for, right? That's why I became a Christian, a better house, a better job, a better bank account, the rich and satisfying life, yeah, that's exactly what I signed up for. And it would seem, on the surface at least, for those who follow God, would have the better and rich and satisfying life, more so than those who don't follow God. But that's not the case. Many of us, we go through circumstances, we go through crashes, we go through the messes of life. And it seems like this, that... that the challenge is, is living at the mercy of our circumstances or living at the mercy of God. And that's what we're going to be talking about in this, in this series called Thrive, is to move away from living at the mercy of our circumstances because it's messy, it's, it's, it's full of crashes, but living at the, the mercy of God. And I'm so excited about this series that we're we'll in during June. In fact, if you miss a Sunday, and I know none of you will in June, uh, if you miss a Sunday, listen to the podcast. Follow along with us as we go through this. Because we're going to be confronting, I think, the fundamental lie of our culture and our world, and it's this. You and I are in control. You and I are self-sufficient. You and I, with enough effort and power and ingenuity if we are on our own, can live this rich and satisfying life. Because when messes occur in my, in my life, in your life, we can clean them up. We can clean them up. We're self-sufficient. We can make things manageable again. We can make things organized. We can make things tidy and get back on track and live what Jesus promises, the rich and satisfying life. But we don't have to live at the mercy of our circumstances. We don't have to live at the mercy of the crashes or the messes, whether big or small, in our lives. I want to invite you this morning to take a step to live at the mercy of God, because God is above and beyond our circumstances. If you have a Bible, I'd like you to turn to Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And I'm actually going to be using the NIV version, because I really like the, how the NIV, New International Version, translates this particular verse. Romans 8, 28. And it's a verse, I think, if you've grown up in the church, you know this really well. And I think it's actually a verse that's been misunderstood and misapplied so much. Romans 8, chapter 8, verse 28. Let me pray for us as we begin together. God in heaven, it is so good for us to come together to worship, to come and to experience you, to experience the joy, the peace that comes with you. God, what we want to do as we dive into the text this morning is, is to take some steps in our lives, but ultimately we want to glorify you. Uh, we want to join you in your redemptive work in the world. 
So God, as a congregation and also us individually, we bow down before you and declare that you are the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said? Amen. Amen. And this is what Paul talks about. And I think that this truth that God is above our circumstances and that we can live at the mercy of God is probably not better expressed or articulated than what Paul says, St. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. He says this, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. So for the beginning of the summer in June, I want us to take this verse and really embed it in our minds and our hearts to get it deep in our bones, to memorize it, whether it's you individually or as a family, post it on the refrigerator, put it on the bathroom mirror, do whatever you need to do, but to have that verse uh, front and center for you. And in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. And I'd like us to have that verse back up there again, and let's say this out loud, recite it as a congregation, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. And what I want us, uh, us to do is begin, I'm just going to kind of take a few steps, just really um, sort of uh, unfolding this verse. And you have teaching notes, I invite you to pull that out, and I'm just going to break down this verse. And I want to start right in the middle of the verse, right in the middle of the sentence, because God is one of the subjects of this sentence. And it's this phrase, and in all things, God works. In all things, God works. See, the statement that Paul is making is not that more good things are going to happen in our lives than bad things. He's not saying that. He's saying that in all circumstances, in all things, God works. We could kind of just stop right there. That could be the sermon right there. In all things, God works. Do you believe that this morning? That in the midst of the messes of your lives, in the midst of your sin, that God works in the midst of unwise decisions, in the midst of great circumstances, in the midst of, of su success and failure, God works. Just write that right there. God works. In fact, in that statement in the original language, Paul's also making sort of an aside statement that the nature of things decline, they decay, that everything is going to decline at some point in this world. That it's in bondage to decay because of the fall, because of sin. Everything is in bondage to decay. Things fall apart. Things fall apart in our world. That's why we have plumbers like Brian Reynardson. And that's why we have electricians like Clint Kruger right here. They fix things. And that's why we have plastic surgeons. I don't think we have a plastic surgeon in our congregation yet, but if he does, I'll, have, I'll refer to that person another time. But also, when, when we buy a new car, why does it depreciate as soon as we, we drive it off the showroom floor or off the parking lot? Because things decline. They devalue. That's the way our world works. Things fall apart. Why do people post pictures that are 15 or 20 years old on Facebook or Twitter? Why? Things fall apart, Right? I've seen some of your pictures. <laughs> Just kidding. But notice this. I want you to note this here in your teaching notes. He is not saying things work out. Okay? He's not saying that things work together for good. Some of us have understood that verse before that way. Because sometimes things don't. But here's the promise. In all things, God works. That's the promise. So no matter the scribbles, the messes of your lives... You can bank on this. You can bet the house on this. In all things, God works. God works. Now the question that we want to ask naturally is what God? What kind of God? 
And one of the uh, sort of the cornerstones of Christianity that comes out in the Apostles' Creed is the first line, is that I believe in God Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. The maker of heaven and earth. And during this series, we're going to be challenged to be reminded just how big our God is. That he's infinitely bigger than our circumstances. He is the maker. He is the maker of heaven and earth. He is the maker of heaven and earth. I love what Isaiah chapter 40 verse 12 says here. And you don't have to turn to this right now, but you can see it on the slide or in your teaching notes. Who else held the oceans in his hand? Who has measured off the heavens with his fingers? Think about that for a moment. Who else held the ocean in his hand? Who has measured off the heavens with his fingers? Perhaps a side note is to say, in, in all things, our great God works. In all things, our great God works. Now, I remember the, uh, this really came uh, very tangible and concrete for me. Is I took a group, a fairly large group of students when I was a youth pastor to the Ozark Mountains in Arkansas. And a number of us went out to a field and threw some blankets down and, and just to look at the stars. And these suburban kids had never seen the, the, the a night sky or the stars without city lights shrouding them. And it was almost as, as we were laying there, you could, you could sort of touch the stars. They were so bright. It was almost like they were plugged in. You ever seen that before? Perhaps you went to the Boundary Waters or maybe a trip up north and you've seen stars like that before where it's like the stars are just sort of um, plugged in somewhere and the whole night sky, it's just so overwhelming. Here's a picture of the Ozark Mountains and that night sky. And we have moments like this and we're reminded of the world we live in. And it reminds me of uh, something an astronomer um, recently uh, observed and and, uh, actually made a sort of an argument about based on empirical data, that we have a uh, hundred trillion stars in each galaxy. And as far as we know, we have 200 billion galaxies. Okay, I'm not really good at math. I was a lit major in, in college, but that's a lot of stars. <laughs> that's a lot of stars. A hundred trillion stars in 200 billion galaxies. And Isaiah sort of continues on with this in verse 26. He says, look up into the heavens. Look up into the night sky. Look up in the night sky in the Ozark Mountains or anywhere. Who created all the stars? He brings them out like an army. I love this. One after another, calling each by its name. Because of his great power and his incomparable strength, not a single one is missing. You may want to underline that phrase. Not a single one is missing. I misplaced my car keys. I misplaced my wallet. Some of the staff give me a hard time because I'll take off for an appointment or I'll take off for the day. And invariably, about 10 minutes later, I, I have to uh, take a U-turn because I, I live in Chaska right now. And uh, I have to do a U-turn on Weaver Lake Road and come back to get my keys or my wallet. And I know I'm the only one who does that, right? Misplaces his, his car keys. But God does not misplace the stars. It's not like he says, sort of, where is Pollux? It's one of the names of the stars. Whereas Castor, he knows exactly where they are. And that's a lot of stars to be in, in charge of. And the question for us is, do we believe that God is big enough? That we have a God that is giant enough, big enough, strong enough, great enough to be in charge of something like this? Because I think for a lot of us, when we think about the world, when we think about perhaps even problems, or stars, galaxies, our reality, it seems like our stuff or the world is so big, 
and God is so small. When we start talking about the universe, we talk, start talking about 100 trillion stars, it seems as if our God shrinks, doesn't he? And to sort of illustrate this, I got these really cool latex balloons. They're all stars. So I wanted to make sure you guys are so special that uh, I'm going to make sure that each of them are shaped as a star. But if I were God, I know that's a large leap, but I think what we see is like the stars and like God behind them. Like, like the universe is so big that God, he can't even get his, you know, like this. I can't get my hands around him. And that God is infinitely smaller than the universe. And like these stars are so big and so large that our God is small in comparison. And to think about that in terms of the world and the universe, can God really name them one by one? I think that's a good question for us. But he can. I mean, it says in Isaiah that he holds them in the breath of his hand. So all these stars, all these galaxies, and I can't do this, obviously, with, with these balloons, unless I popped them. I won't do that. But uh, he holds the stars in the breath of his hand. And I think for us to think about a God, got to make sure these don't float to the ceiling because I'll get in trouble by our maintenance people, um, is to think about God, a God who's, in I, what Isaiah says, that is so large, infinitely larger, that he's able to hold these stars in the breath of his hand. What God do you picture of? If you were to draw a picture of God, what would that picture look like? Would it look like where he is smaller in comparison to the universe? That he is smaller in comparison to the stars, perhaps? Or maybe come more home that he is smaller compared to the reality of your life? I want to invite you to this morning to believe in a God who is way beyond, larger, greater than all these stars and all your problems and all the challenges you have in your life. In all things, our great God works. And this, this leads to a really important question. I want you to listen to this. Someone asked me this quite recently. Do you believe that God is working when you're not? Do you believe God is working when you're not? When you go to bed at night, do you believe that God is still working in all things in your life? That's a good question for us to wrestle with. Do I believe that God is at work when I am not at work? Sometimes when it comes to Romans chapter 8, verse 28, in the Craig Case version, CCV, uh, Paul, Paul perhaps writes it this way. You, Craig Case, make sure you're at work in all circumstances to do good because if you don't, it'll never get done. I think sometimes, many times, I believe that. Do we believe that God is at work when we are not or when we're unable? Let's continue on. Then Paul says, in all things, God works for the good. This is a really important phrase. God is at work for the good. And sometimes we take that out of context and, and we think that what Paul is saying is that, is that, you know, we'll get good circumstances. So that in any circumstance I'm in, God is at work for the good. So if I'm not in a good circumstance, God is going to give me a better circumstance. He's going to give me a better house. Or he's going to give me a better job. Or perhaps God is going to give me a better promotion. Or, or maybe, for some people, 
that as you date, you're thinking maybe God is going to give me a better person eventually than the one I have right now. And we have this mindset that, that God is going to, the rich and satisfying life to thrive means that we just get better and better and better things. Not so. Things happen. Good things happen to me and you, and bad things happen to me and you. And it's, we generally uh, want good things. And I think in many ways, we're like kids that look to parents and say, Mom and Dad, I want you to give me a very big allowance and fun toys and fun trips. That's it. And I think for many of us, when we think about the rich and satisfying life, that's what, the, that's what that means. But when we love somebody, we love our kids, we're generally more concerned about good things happening in them than just what happens to them, right? At least we try to tell our kids that. That we're more concerned what happens, what's being formed inside them, than simply the good things that are happening to them. We want good things to happen to our children. And a child will say to a parent, I want good things to happen to me, but if a parent really loves a child, if you really love your son or your daughter, sometimes you have to be willing to bring about bad things, a punishment, time out, in order to make good things happen in your son or daughter. Yet so many of us thirst for good things to happen to us, more so than good things. Forget the character development stuff. You might be here right now and been in church for a lot of years, and you're so tired of hearing that the character development stuff. You're like, Craig, you have no idea of the crashes and the messes in my life. I'm tired of this character development stuff. I just want the good stuff. I want the rich and satisfying life. But that's not what Paul is promising for us. The promise that Paul is making here for us is that we know that in all things, God works for the good. Okay? Now, what does that mean? Let's take this verse further for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Now get this, what is that purpose? To become like his son. That's it. To thrive. The rich and satisfying life is become more and more and more like Jesus Christ. In all things, God works for the good of those who love him, according to his purpose. To become like his son. That is what God is trying to do in all the things of your life the good and bad, taking that and making you and shaping you to become more and more like Christ Jesus. That's the second observation in your teaching notes is that in all things God works for the good, for you to become more and more like Christ. And that is beyond any price. That's beyond any value. It is for you to become formed and made more and more like Christ through eternity. That's something that, that moth or rust will not destroy. Because everything else that we have in this life decays. It declines. But to have a, being formed in Christ is something that will stay with you for eternity. That's a good thing. And God promises to use all the stuff for our lives to make that happen. Let's continue on. And in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. And this is one of my favorite phrases in this verse, Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Because God wants people who love him. Now when Paul writes this to the Roman Christians in chapter 8, verse 28, what he's, what he's saying, or actually what he's living out, is this famous uh, well-known prayer. And we use this quite a bit here at Maple Grove Covenant Church, and, and it's the Shema. 
Hebrew, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Listen, O Israel, uh, the, Lord God, the Lord our God is one. Love him with all your heart, mind, and soul. Or heart, mind, and strength. And something about this that really stands out is what, what, what Paul would recite in the morning and what he would recite at night because this is something that him and other Jewish people would say every day a number of times is that this God is lovable. Now, that not, may not seem like a big thing, but back in the ancient world, you would not be walking around saying, I love Malekt. He was one of, the, one of the gods of a different religion. Or I love Baal. You would never say that because those gods were not lovable. But this God is vulnerable enough who wants to be loved. And in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. This is a God who wants to be loved. And I think for so, so many of us, we see God, perhaps he's not the small God behind the galaxy, but perhaps we see this, this giant God that, that just repeats things to us. Judgment or like just rigid obedience. That's all he is. Reminds me of the character Hodor in Game of Thrones. That Hodor, all he says when someone talks to him or when some, somebody says something to him, he just simply says, Hodor, Hodor, Hodor. He says it over and over. That's all he says. That's the only word he says. I think for a lot of us, we see God in a similar way. He's this giant God. And all he does is repeat to us over and over, obey me, obey me, obey me, obey me, as if that's the only thing about God. Or serve me, serve me, serve me. Or you sinned, you sinned, you sinned. We think God in that way. But we have, what we see, we see right here, is a God who wants to be loved. And that is one of the most revolutionary thoughts. I hope you capture that this morning, is that we have a God who wants to be loved Third observation from Romans 8, 28. In all things, God works for the good of those who love him. This is a part of what needs to be fixed in my mind and in my heart. To live in a world where we worship a great, lovable God who's at work in all things. He's at work in all things. That it's like God is working in the midst of the canvas of our lives where he works with the scribbles. He works with the messes. And somehow, in some way, we can't see it, but he's putting something together. And what Paul says in Ephesians 2.10 is a masterpiece. His masterpiece. And that masterpiece is defined differently in God's eyes than what, what the world sees. It doesn't mean you're a size zero, okay? It doesn't mean that you, that you have these enormous biceps, that life is just clicking. No, the masterpiece that God has put together looks far different from the world's definition. But God promises that. And in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. For the, for the purpose of becoming like his son, Jesus Christ. And here's a video that illustrates this. I've heard it. You've heard it. It's time for a new beginning. Time to start a fresh page or paint a new picture with our life. Sounds great in theory, but it can seem impossible. Life is messy. The lines have gotten blurred. Maybe we just don't know where to start. We look at the canvas of our lives and see mistake after mistake after mistake. It's overwhelming. 
when I look at my life with these messy lines and scribbles, it makes me think, is this as good as it gets? There's no eraser that can make this life make sense. But what if? What if there was someone that could make sense of our mess? They could take all our scribbles, all our mistakes, all our missed opportunities, and make them into a masterpiece. And then I remember, there is Jesus. He gives us a new life. Every day is new. Every day is a blank canvas full of possibility and promise. He takes our canvases, our lives that have been filled up with shortcomings, secrets, tragedies, and embarrassments, and he helps them make sense. When I look at the canvas of my life and I see nothing but disorder and chaos, I have to remember this. God is not a God of disorder. He's a God of peace. And you know what? He wants to take my hand and bring peace to the canvas of my life. So as we seek to make our mark, let us give God all our scribbles, all our mistakes, all our hurts, and trust that he will turn our messy lives into a masterpiece, his masterpiece. And now it's what it means to thrive, and that's what we're going to be talking about in the series. Do you believe that this morning, that in the midst of the scribbles of your lives, that in the midst of unwise decisions, perhaps, or sin, that God in some way is working in all things. Because our sin doesn't circumvent God. It doesn't stop God from his work. I think some of us think that. I did this, I did this, I did this. So, so God's like over there, and he's going to wait for me to get it all cleaned up, and then he'll re-enter my life. Paul's not saying that. What he's saying is this unbelievable thought that in all things, God works. In all things, God works. And that, maybe that's a phrase that you just need to repeat to yourself this week. Your past, perhaps. In all things, God works. Your present. In all things, God works. In the future, in all things, God works. So let's say this verse together, Romans 8, 28. And in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Let's say it one more time. And in all things... God works for the good of those who love him. Let me pray. Father God, we give thanks for this morning. And Lord, help us to trust you. And even when it seems like uh, that we are at the mercy of our circumstances, help us to make the paradigm shift and live a life that's at the mercy of you. That's what it means to thrive. The thrive is to let go of the steering wheel. The thrive is to let go of control and to have faith and confidence that no matter what, even when things are not okay, and in all things, God works. In Christ's name we pray, amen. At this time, we're going to re receive this morning's offering, and I just want to mention something, that if you're a person who calls Maple Grove Covenant Church your home, uh, we invite you, we need you to be a person who gives uh, towards our giving. And what's interesting, just to give you a little, some stats, that's why I mentioned this here, that over the past year, 
uh, we have had seen an increase, and obviously this is some probably duplicates, but 456 people attend Maple Grove Covenant Church more now than last year, in the last 11 months or whatever. But at the same time, our giving has decreased $64,000. Uh, so if you call this church home, we want to invite you to give and be a part of our community because it's a way that we worship and give back to God who gives to us. Thanks.